0: turn in our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 24 today. Let me read through this passage and then we'll look at it verse by verse. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You must also help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. For our boast is this, The testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me away on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith may the lord add, add his blessing to the reading of his word last week we began our series in second corinthians it's called i'm content and is intended to be a stark contrast between jonah who was it seems never content and paul who was always content i want to explore with you the differences between these two men they do indeed have some major similarities. They were both godly men, both chosen messengers for God, both had a close relationship with God. So why was there such a big difference in their attitudes? Well, we're going to find out. Last week we looked at the first seven verses in chapter one and found out about comfort. Now, Paul made this comfort the theme of his entire letter, because there was tension between himself and the Corinthians, so we, he started his letter out with a blessing, and and then moved on to a scriptural principle, then moved on to a theological teaching. So, but, but here was the scriptural principle: the more we suffer, the more God comforts us. Paul used that principle to show us that God comforts us so that we can comfort others. We found out that comfort works just like grace. God pours comfort into us so that we can pour it out again and be a witness to his presence in our lives. The reason he does this is so that we become a living testimony to his presence in our lives. This week we're going to look at why Paul has chosen to teach him about comfort. Today's passage can be divided up into three scenes. We'll see Paul's trials in verse 8. We'll see Paul's testimony in verses 9 through 14. And in verses 15 through 24, we will see Paul's trust in Jesus Christ. And here's what I hope to show you this morning in the middle of all this. Here's the premise of our sermon this morning. The only trust we truly have is trust in Christ. The only trust we truly have is trust in Christ. Today's sermon is Paul's testimony. This is I Am Content, part two. So after Paul speaks to the Corinthians of comfort, he tells them why comfort's an important thing to him. And in this we see our, our first scene, Paul's trials. It's there in the first half of verse 8, verse 8a. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Now notice this verse starts out with 4. So Paul's writing in the context of what he had to say about comfort. And he had just encouraged them in verse 7 by saying, Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. So, as he tells them they will share in his sufferings, it, it, it doesn't mean that they're going to have the same sufferings. It doesn't mean they're going to go through the same things that Paul did. Paul's trying to make them aware of his sufferings. Uh, he's trying to share. He said, "Let me let me tell you. Let me share with you what my sufferings were about, so that he can make them aware of his comfort." Indeed, they're going to experience sufferings on their own, and Paul wants them to be assured of the comfort that God provides even in the middle of suffering. So he begins to share his own sufferings in verse eight. He's had a tough time in Asia. Now, this is not Asia as we know it. I know they're spelled the same, but they're pronounced differently. Now, ASEA is in what we now call Turkey, uh, and ASEA borders on the Aegean Sea. It is the far western border of Turkey. Asia was a Roman province, had a Roman governor. Its capital was in Ephesus. But you know what? That's about all we know. That's about all we know about Paul's affliction. It was in ASEA. Now, pay close attention to what's happening here. Paul has given the Corinthians this theological lesson in comfort and suffering. Isn't that what verses seven 1 through 7 were all about? It's a doctrine of comfort, a doctrine of suffering that Paul's given him. He says comfort comes from God so that we can comfort others. And, and, and that all that happens as a way of showing others God's presence in our lives. So Paul has delivered this biblical truth, but he doesn't want it to be purely academic. He doesn't want to just shoot this at him and say, okay, start doing this. So now he relates his personal experience in suffering and comfort. He tells him in the first half of verse 8 that he suffered, and in the second half, he tells him how rough it was. 8b, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. The trials, the trials were enormous. Paul thought he was going to die. But look, There are no details. There's not a smidgen of background. Nothing. Some people find that unusual. I find it unusual. Paul's not taking the opportunity to take out his pain, to put his suffering on display and show them how magnificent it is so that they can be impressed by the amazing degree of hardship that he suffered. Some folks do that. Do they? Do they focus on their own suffering? When when you ask them how their day went, do they tell you about all the bad things that happened to them and none of the good? Have you ever run into anybody that was so consumed by their own pain that's all they talk about? It's all they think about? Do you do that? i got to be honest with you. Sometimes I catch myself doing that. Sometimes I catch myself focusing on the hardship I've got, if I can call the things I go through hardship, and not focusing on the blessings. I used to have an acquaintance that thought when I said, how are you? It was an opportunity for him to tell me how hard his life was. And he would do it in tremendous detail. And, you know, it took me a while to get used to that and uh, when when I finally just got to the point to where this is who my friend is if I'm going to spend time with him this is how it's going to go I couldn't correct him I couldn't change him I kinda got to the point where it always made me wonder how much I do the same thing dote on my troubles wear my hardship my hardship out on my sleeve so the people will have sympathy for me look at Paul he spends no time describing his situation you know why He doesn't want to call attention to himself. He gives the Corinthians all they need to know and nothing more. The situation was so bad that he despaired of life itself. Now, why would Paul, who's gone through so much suffering and had such a hard life, by the way, uh, such a hard life ever since he got saved, why wouldn't this man who has endured so much want to let people know how deeply he suffered? He will indeed go into some detail later. But I've got to tell you something. When he goes into detail later on in the book, it is an appropriate context and an appropriate setting. For now, he's silent. Well, we find another reason for his silence. We'll get to why in just a second. We find another reason for his silence in our second scene, Paul's testimony. Paul is short on detail because he wants to teach them what his affliction and comfort mean theologically he's doing a doctrinal teaching here, in hopes of them appropriating that teaching into their lives. Without a way for the theology of comfort to sink into their lives, without some way of them being able to relate to it, all they'd be left with is some touching story about how Paul suffered. So the reason for both of these things is that Paul wants to take the spotlight off himself and put it on Jesus. All Paul wants the Corinthians to know about him is that he was helpless to rescue himself. And he was left without hope. Now, Paul wants this to be clear. So in verse 9, as he begins his testimony, he tells them, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul makes it clear right up front that everything he went through was to teach him to rely on God rather than, than himself. And, and he throws in a reminder that even though Paul thought he might die, God raises the dead. Uh, we know that because he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, I've got to tell you something. That was a radical way for the Corinthian church to think. That was a radical way for them to look at life. I mean, after all, they were living in one of the richest cities in the world. They had everything. Even the lowest of the low in Corinth enjoyed enjoyed a lifestyle the rest of the world would look up to. Virtually the entire city. I mean, when the Romans built Corinth, when when they built it in that little isthmus so that ships could pass through it, uh, they populated it with slaves, with slave owners, with the dregs of society. And within less than 100 years, they had built the city into one of the great jewels of southern Greece. So virtually the entire city was made up of self-made people, people who had worked hard to get where they were. And were, to be honest with you, they were quite proud to be there. They had good reason to be. They had done an incredible work. And now, here comes Paul wanting to teach them to rely on God. He wants them to rely on God, not on himself, Telling the church that God may allow some hardship to enter their lives just to cause them to rely totally on Him, on God. Now, Paul had to learn that lesson. That's what he's saying here. And the, the question that would linger in the background is, can they learn that lesson? You know, there are a lot of similarities between the church at Corinth and maybe the way we live life in the United States. We have, a, we have it very good here. And it's not until you get out of the country and see how other people in the world live that you realize how blessed we are. So Paul asks the Corinthians, can you, learn, can you learn that lesson? You who have learned to rely on yourself, can you learn the lesson to rely on God? And it echoes right down into this sanctuary today in the 21st century. Can we learn that lesson? Can we learn to rely on God instead of ourselves? Now Paul Paul knows this is hard. The reason he knows it's hard is because he's been through it. He is going through it. Still, he wants to encourage them from his experience. So he says in verse 10, He delivered us from such a deadly peril and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. God delivered Paul from whatever trial he suffered. And Paul takes that as evidence that God is going to deliver him again. Meanwhile, Paul has set his hope on God's ultimate deliverance, deliverance from death. Paul sees a pattern and a promise in God's deliverance. He's seen God's deliverance in the past. He sees it in the present. That caused him the hope on God's deliverance in the future. Uh, He sees uh, God's deliverance from life's situations as a deposit. A deposit on God's promise to deliver him from death. Paul believes God is showing his faithfulness in how he works in Paul's life. When Paul dares to rely on God, there's a phrase for you. When Paul dares to rely on God, God delivers. Now, this is is not Paul just showing off his theological chops here, Paul is part of the church. He's part of a body. Paul needs the church. You know, you might find that odd. For a guy who's had everything, he, I mean, Paul was the Jew of all Jews. He, he had the best education, he had the most promise. Uh, he was one of the leading Jews of his time, and God just turned him upside down, turned him inside out theologically. Challenged everything that Paul believed and understood. Took everything away from him and gave him something new. Gave him something vibrant. He sent him to the Gentiles to be a messenger of the gospel. He assigned Paul to write over half of the New Testament. But Paul is part of the church. And he needs the church. And that means he needs the Corinthians. When it would be so easy to view the Corinthians as the adversary. To view somebody as somebody he needed to get under control or maybe avoid if he was passive. He says he needs the Corinthians. You also, verse 11, must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Paul implores the Corinthians to pray for him. He's no lone cowboy, he's not self sufficient. He's not ashamed to ask for help, not adverse to admitting that he needs prayer. Paul wants the whole body praying. Why? So that the entire church can give thanks when God delivers. The more who pray, the more who give thanks. The more who give thanks, the more glory God gets. Think about this the next time someone asks for prayer requests. In a day and time when a lot of people would rather not ask for prayer, you know, some of them, maybe they believe their prayer requests are not worthy. Perhaps some are embarrassed. They don't want others to know that they're struggling. They want others to know that they're not quite as spiritually mature as they portray themselves to be. Paul tells us our prayer requests are not about us, they're opportunities for God to receive thanks and glory for what He does. There are opportunities for God to receive glory for what he does when he answers them. So Paul is bold with his prayer requests, and as such, he encourages us to be bold as well. Then his his testimony shifts from Paul's deliverance to how God has worked in his relationship with the Corinthians. Now, we know they're, they're offended by the visit that Paul missed and tensions have been building, but in verse 12, Paul says that he acted with godly sincerity and by the grace of God toward them. He says he will boast of this. Now, this is probably a reaction to some of his critics in Corinth who were boasting that they were real apostles and Paul is not. Paul says, well, if people are going to boast about things, let me tell you what I'm going to boast about. I'm going to boast about the grace of God in my life. Instead of claiming a lofty status among you, instead of trying to put down other people, I'm going to talk about God. You see, do you see what Paul's doing here? He's in the middle of a tense, very personal conflict. He's under fire. He displays the peace and comfort that he preaches about. He's not about to get drawn into an exchange with those who are attacking him. He knows that if he allowed himself to do that, it would become a him versus them. All the attention would be either on Paul or on his critics, and none of the attention would be on Christ. So instead of doing that, he begins to console and comforts those people that he loves putting feet to what he's teaching them by pointing towards Christ instead of himself, allowing his defense to be the grace of God flowing through him, showing that he is comforted by God, not by what other people think about him, not by what other people say about him. Then in verse 13 and 14, Paul tells them he's being transparent. There's no hidden meaning, no other agenda, and, and he's doing this because the Corinthians have a history of misinterpreting Paul. You can look back at 1 Corinthians 5 to see how they misunderstand what Paul's saying. But Paul's being patient. He's telling them that, that they'll understand and come to boast of him the way he boasts of them. Paul has confidence in the Corinthians that they will one day fully understand him, even if he has to wait until the Lord comes. So he's patient, but he's not only patient with them. He sees them as part of God's family, part of the church. Paul feels united with them. And with that, he moves from his testimony to our third scene, his trust. His trust in Jesus. In verses 15 and 16, he reveals to them that his original intention was to come visit them, to share God's grace because of the unity he feels with them he was going to stop on the way to macedonia and again on the way back now here paul's referring to the plans he made in his letter in first corinthians listen to what he wrote then first corinthians 16 5 through 7 i will visit with you after passing through macedonia for i intend to pass through macedonia and perhaps i'll stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever i go For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. Now listen, Paul just expressed his desire to see them if the Lord permits. But when he doesn't show up, the Corinthian church chooses to take offense. So rather than show grace and give Paul the benefit of the doubt, Rather than look at the situation and, and react in a way that they know Paul. Rather than saying, well, perhaps the Lord didn't permit. Perhaps the Lord has stopped him from coming. This must be the will of the Lord. Let's just live with it. They get mad. They get upset. Now this, this is a danger of assuming something or someone is offensive. Of just assuming that they are. This is the danger of making a decision based on a partial understanding of what's going on. This is the danger of reacting emotionally and allowing anger to take over when grace is supposed to be flowing through us. This is the danger. Let's move this into the 21st century and and give it a context that we can fully understand. This is the danger of reading headlines without reading articles. It's the danger of believing something we read or hear and appropriating it into our lives just because it agrees with the way we think. Without bothering to verify its authenticity. We do that, don't we? We see something on the news. Uh, on whatever channel that we watch because they agree with everything we, we, we believe. Uh, we see something on Facebook and, and we appropriate it and we choose to believe in it without, without comparing it to the Scriptures, without comparing it to the character and nature of God. And, and, and if that's not bad enough, we then begin to disseminate it to other people who are going to do the same thing we do. And we think because somebody says yes, somebody gives you a like, somebody gives you a high five, slaps you on the back. We think that because they agree with us well, we both must be right. And very frequently, the test of the veracity of that thing that we are embracing does not stand up to the measure of Scripture. You see, those are the mistakes the Corinthians made. They fell victim to people who told them exactly what they wanted to hear. And now, now their angry reactions have caused a huge mess. They misunderstood Paul. They misinterpreted what was happening. Some folks either came in or rose up in the congregation. I mean, when it happened, these people rose up promising the congregation that they were the real deal, not Paul. And the interlopers, i got th- the interlopers looked pretty good when filtered through the Corinthians' hurt feelings and anger. And when we allow... The things that we embrace to be filtered through our hurt feelings and anger, it can cause us to misunderstand and misinterpret. Paul says the Corinthians should know him better. Verse seventeen: Was I vacillating when I when I wanted to do this? Do I? Paul's saying, "You know me. Do I vacillate? Do I make my plans according to the flesh?" Ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Have I ever been two-faced to you, Paul says? Have I ever done something that was untrustworthy? Where, where, Where is this apprehension coming from? Paul really wants them to consider who they trust. These divisive people, these people that are causing anger and dissension, or him. And so... You know, we understand that if we're reading this correctly. We've got to ask, how's Paul going to defend himself against these accusers? How's he going to defend himself against those people who believe the accusers? Not the whole church believes them, but some of them do. Watch this. Watch what Paul does. Paul's only defense is the Word of God. His only defense is the Word of God. Now, there's a lesson we can learn today, isn't it? Instead of reacting to a group of people, instead of reacting to an accusation or something he heard or a rumor, instead of lashing out and thinking that more anger is going to rectify the situation or thinking that anger or coarse chastisement is going to change someone's heart, instead of inflaming the situation, instead of pouring gas on the fire, Paul simply refers to the character and nature of God. Listen, verse 18. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has, been, has not been yes and no. He first appeals to what they know to be true about God. God is faithful. They can trust God. Now, why can they trust God? Are they supposed to trust God simply because Paul says so? Are they supposed to trust God simply because they know who Paul is? Listen, they can trust God because they have been changed. They've been changed. They're being transformed. They're being changed by the gospel Paul brought to them. The evidence of God's faithfulness is that change. Check that out. The evidence of God's faithfulness is the change that is going on in the Corinthian church. The evidence of God's faithfulness is themselves. All they have to do is look inside. Have you ever, have you ever thought of yourself as the evidence of God's faithfulness? It's true. Your fear of God, your desire to be closer to Him, your interest in His Word. If you believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, the fact that you're even listening to this sermon is proof that He is faithful. Why? Because it's proof that you are being changed. You're being drawn closer to Him. Now, if you haven't made that move yet, if you are not repented of your sins and received Jesus Christ as Lord, if you haven't confessed them, thrown yourself on his mercy, confess that he's the only Son of God, and received eternal life through him. Well, the fact that you're listening to this sermon, the fact that you're curious enough to listen to the sermon, listen, the fact that you're curious enough to listen to this sermon is God calling you. It is the Holy Spirit in you, drawing you to the Father, calling you to confess to him and believe in him. The evidence of of God's trustworthiness is the transformation that the Corinthians are going through. It's a transformation that we're going through. It's beautiful. The Corinthians may be struggling. They may not have all this down pat. They might not understand all the theological nuance of what's happening here. But they are being changed. So Paul appeals to that change and asks them not to trust in him, but to trust in Christ. Paul doesn't want them to accept his yes or no. He wants them to accept the yes of Christ. Verse 19, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in Him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it's through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. Listen, any promise that Paul would make is nothing but a human response. And it would bear all the human frailty of Paul. It would bear all of the imperfections of Paul. Paul was pretty good, but he was still just a man. And he was still subject to the desires and, and the emotions of a man. And, but the promise of God, the promise of God is faithful and true. Paul's promise might not be true, but we know that the promise of God is faithful and true. And it is manifested in its full glory in Jesus Christ. And the promise of God is yes, yes. Yes to the redemption of sin. Yes to being a child of God. Yes to a new heart and a new life. Yes to comfort, peace, and joy. Yes to being a peacemaker. Yes to the strength to carry on. Yes to eternal life in His presence. The answer is yes! And it's found in Christ alone. So Paul, dealing with the Corinthian church, agrees with God and His Word for His glory. And he does it in and through Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't ask them to trust Him, but to trust Christ. Christ is the most powerful uniting force believers have. There's no division. There's no tension. There's no distrust for those in Christ because they're all one. They're all brought together in him. Paul says as much in verse 21 and 22. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us and given his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. God has united Paul and the Corinthians. Paul sees this and has anointed them, has anointed his church to be messengers of the gospel. And as a guarantee, as an assurance that this is trustworthy, God has placed the Holy Spirit in every believer. That's evidenced by the change. Paul wants them to trust in that. Trust in the Spirit in them that witnesses to their unity and their calling. Paul is willing to trust that the Spirit in the Corinthians will vindicate him and bring them into unity with him. He trusts in Christ so much. He says in verse 23 and 24. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming back to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith. But we work with you. For your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. So first he subjects himself to the judgment. The evaluation of Christ. Paul is lying. He's in trouble. But he's telling the truth. And he calls upon the Lord to to evaluate what he says. If Christ is a witness to the truth of what Paul is teaching, Paul, listen, if if Christ is his witness, Paul will be vindicated and the Corinthians will be edified. That's how Christ works. As Paul is vindicated and edified because Paul is part of the body, the body is united, they are vindicated and edified. Paul places himself totally in the hands of Jesus. But he also, even as he does that, he gives the Corinthians his startling revelation. The reason he didn't come to visit them was to spare them. Spare them from what? Well, he doesn't say right here. He will in the next chapter. Uh, whatever it is, it's obvious that the Corinthians still have a lot to learn. There's a ways to go here. And, and we need to see that Paul's revelation is not... It's not a revelation of uh, an anger. Uh, it's not an act of retri- retribution. Uh, perhaps one day the Corinthians will see it uh, as Paul's expression of love towards them. Again, we'll see that in the next chapter. All Paul really desires for them is joy. And he, he, and see, and, and he kind of expresses this by telling them that he encourages them to continue. He doesn't say, you guys aren't really Christians. He doesn't say, gee, I, I doubt your, your salvation. I, he really says, continue in your faith. He goes, You've gone this far. You're doing a good job. I love you. We're, we're all one. Uh, I want to urge you to continue in your faith. So, let's take a peek again at our three scenes. We saw Paul's trials. Just a quick explanation of review here we don't know what they were but you know that's not really important what they were just isn't the point what Paul wants us and the Corinthians to remember is that God delivered him and will do so again and that because we see God moving that way in Paul's life and God is never changing and he loves all of us uh, all of us who are called into his church that, that he'll do that again and that we can take that as a guarantee That God will deliver us. So that was Paul's trials in Nicaea and his testimony. I had these trials and God delivered me. He's going to deliver you. Then we read about Paul's trust in Christ. He placed everything he had in the hands of Christ. Uh, Paul labored for the gospel, suffered for it. Suffered to take the gospel of Corinth, didn't he? where enough people came to Christ to start a church, and now Paul's reputation and his relationship with the church is in jeopardy. Instead of defending himself, he trusts Christ. He points to Christ. He places all of his trust in Christ. Christ in Paul and Christ in the Corinthians. If Christ is truly in all of them, there will be peace and reconciliation. It's how the church is supposed to function. If Christ is truly in all of us, there will be peace, there will be reconciliation, we'll work through the tensions that occur and they will occur from time to time, we'll work through them in a godly manner. That's a lesson for us today. If Christ is truly in us, we can trust Him. We can trust Him to deliver us. We can trust Him to minister peace in and through us. We can trust Him to defend us so that we don't have to defend ourselves. And actually take that a step further. We can trust Him to defend us so that we don't feel like we have to defend Him. We can trust Him with our future. That's what Paul did. We can trust Him with our earthly life because He's given us a heavenly, eternal life. Ultimately, ultimately Paul knows exactly what we said when we started here. The only one he can trust is Christ the only one he can truly cr- trust is Christ but rephrase that just a little bit the only one he truly has to trust is Christ Christ is the yes to all the promises Christ is a faithful one if we like Paul place our trust in him Paul says in Romans we will never be disappointed The world will let us down. Christ never will. Amen.